1: In Nha Trang, Vietnam, a man dozing in a hammock is etched onto a piece of wood. In Moscow, the same sign shows a woman holding a shrunken adult asleep in her arms. In Mombasa, Kenya, the quiff of a shushing cartoon face forms the hook to go over the door handle. Accompanying them all are the words familiar to travellers the world over. Do not disturb. These signs and 9,000 more are part of the collection of the retired United Nations employee Eduardo Flores, who travelled to hotels in 190 countries for his work. But for guests of at least one chain, do not disturb signs could soon become redundant. The knock at the door of housekeeping is being heard less and less in Hilton hotels as they make the daily amenity optional. Guests now have to call the front desk to request it. Reducing services is one way American businesses are dealing with a lack of available workers caused by a tight labour market. I'm John Prideaux. This is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, Will the employment boom reshape the relationship between American workers and companies? The labour market has rebounded from its pandemic-induced slump with gusto, perhaps with too much for chief executives anyway. A recent survey found that they cite worker shortages as the biggest threat to their businesses in 2022. As the labor market tightens, firms are having to get creative in order to fill vacancies. Is this the dawn of a new era of power for the American worker? With me, as ever, to make sense of all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fassman, the U.S. digital editor. Charlotte, what's happening in New York? I see Joe Biden has gone to hang out with Eric Adams to learn about policing.
2: That's true. And as a result, my son was stuck for an hour on his school bus for a ride that's usually 20 minutes because all of the traffic from Biden's presidency But otherwise, all is well here in New York. Eric Adams has an interesting challenge because he came in as a police, a former police officer himself, um, wanting to deal with crime in a pragmatic way while reforming the department. And there have been a few high profile violent acts recently. There were some police officers who were shot in Harlem, a big funeral last week. So it's a challenging time for the mayor right off the bat.
1: And have Spotify been in touch with you about replacing Neil Young's back catalogue?
2: No comment. When the songs reappear on Spotify, you'll be able to judge for yourself whether it's the real Neil Young or some extremely skilled impersonator.
1: John, how are things in your bit of New York State? I'm very excited that you're coming to London next week.
0: I can't wait to have dinner at Prito Towers. I am indecently excited. So after this podcast is over, I'm going to pack up, head to the airport, and I will be in London uh, tomorrow morning, I hope. It's going to be like when the Beatles
1: first went to America in 1964, only in reverse. You're going to be mobbed by hordes of screaming listeners when you land at Heathrow.
2: I'm picturing a crowd of screaming Phasman fans called Phasmaniacs who will be screaming and yelling and fainting, and then the sight of these people will make John Phasman faint.
0: Yeah, get back on the plane and go home. What's going on?
1: (laughs) Okay, before we get into this week's episode, which is really going to be one driven by Charlotte, because we're on one of her areas of expertise, I just wanted to mention that we had a letter from a retired CIA officer who was cross that I had mangled the roles of CIA agents and officers in last week's podcast in the history package when we were talking about MKUltra and what the CIA was up to with hallucinogenic drugs in the 1950s and 1960s. So I apologise for that. But it was very nice to hear from a retired CIA officer. Please do keep those letters coming in. The address is podcasts at economist.com. Charlotte, you're going to pilot this week's episode because you've been doing the reporting on what's happening in America's labour market and in the relationship between companies and workers. Could you just begin by laying out quite what an unusual situation we have at the moment?
2: Yes. So it's an extraordinary time. In December, the Labor Department reported there were 10.9 million open jobs. That's more than 60% more vacancies than there were in December of 2019 before the pandemic. So a really big jump in the number of positions that are open. And there are only six workers for every 10 available jobs. So it's pretty interesting. And you see Joe Biden talking about this as the great upgrade. He wants to say, it's not about everyone quitting. It's about people getting better jobs. And the truth is, it's both. You see some people leaving the labor market, and you see some people searching for better work. So a few weeks ago, I went to Buffalo. And the reason I went there is there are all kinds of interesting things happening in the way companies are trying to recruit workers and the decisions that workers themselves are making. So I went to an old Ford plant, a place where they built cars um, in the early part of the 20th century that has now been converted to a whole host of offices. And one of them is home to a group that's trying to unionize Starbucks called Workers United. I'm in the Buffalo office of Workers United. It's a big room that looks out through these old factory industrial windows onto the neighborhood of Buffalo where it's snowing pretty hard right now but the walls are covered with posters, some printed by the union, some are printouts of articles about their effort to unionize Starbucks. The main logo is a fist rising up, holding a tea shaker within the Starbucks um, green circle. There's also a Starbucks mermaid that looks exactly the same as the Starbucks mermaid you'd be familiar with, except she has a frown on her face and a fist raised.
3: That's terrible. Strawberry, acai, mango, dragon fruit, those are the big
2: things. It's there I met Angel Krempa, who's been working at Starbucks for two years.
3: Oh, gosh, I didn't either. Angel's
2: 23, software. part of the wave of young people who are driving the union effort. Her great-grandfathers were in unions during Buffalo's industrial heyday. She's now talking to her fellow employees about the benefits of organizing. Is there a kind of cheat sheet or top three reasons why you think people should join the union that you try to articulate?
3: Um, yeah, there's, we can almost guarantee that we can have a better work day every day if we represent ourselves. So why not do that for ourselves? The other one is to make sure that like Starbucks lives up to what they say, because they do have a lot of talk and they do all of this and they make sure that the community knows that like they're here for them, but we don't see that as their employees. And we just want to bring that culture of positivity back to every store. So I think we can do that with a union, and that's also something that I think a lot of us just really grasp onto. We want to make sure that the company becomes its best version of itself, so we're going to represent ourselves and make sure it does that.
2: Sam Amato is a shift supervisor at a store in Amherst, which is a wealthy suburb of Buffalo. And Starbucks might seem like an unlikely target for worker discontent because it offers baristas' benefits and tuition assistance, but Sam told me that the company's culture attracts progressive workers, and he said they tell us to challenge the status quo, and that's what we're doing. We do have good benefits. We have better benefits than most people in the service industry, and, and I am very thankful, and I love working for Starbucks, but it could be better. Our, our pay could be a lot better. It's a very high-stress job, not just with the pandemic. In general, it's, it's, it's incredibly stressful. I don't think we're given enough staff. I don't think we're given enough resources. Has that occurred to you to leave Starbucks and try to find work somewhere else? Um I've lightly entertained it, but I do like what I do. I, I, I like it a lot. It's really
3: fun. I work with a great group of people. I want to make it better.
2: Unionization rates in America are pretty paltry. Last year, there was a record low of 10.3% of American workers who were part of one. But even that figure is high because it includes government jobs. If you look across the private sector, only about 6% of workers are unionized. So organizers hope to change that. February will see not just the Starbucks union vote in Buffalo, but also a vote to unionize a huge Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama. That drive's being led by the retail, wholesale, and department store union. Its leader, Stuart Applebaum, says that high-profile union fights are putting labor back in the spotlight.
3: The pandemic has exposed a lot of things. And I think that people saw that they could not necessarily trust their employers to protect them. People were saying Early on, thank you to essential workers who kept working while others were able to work from home. But saying thank you is not enough. What people really need are um, fair wages and good benefits, and they need real um, health and safety protection.
2: In November, Howard Schultz, Starbucks founder, traveled to Buffalo to speak with workers. He described his childhood in Brooklyn and his vision for Starbucks and its partners, which is what he calls its employees. It's a story I've heard him tell before, back when he was preparing his run for president and wanted to tout Starbucks as a model corporation. But Angel's one of many workers who are simply holding companies to a higher bar. He
3: said, we have this health insurance and this care for you guys, and nobody told us to do it. We just did it. And it's like, well, I mean, it's what you're supposed to do. You know, you don't have a child and blame them for you know the roof over their head and everything like that that's not what you do and that's the tone that he was kind of like talking in almost like we were ungrateful children
1: charlotte buffalo for the past 10, 20, maybe even more years, it's been a bit of a byword for one of the left behind places in America. So quite striking to hear there in your reporting that wages there are picking up the workers seem to feel like they have momentum on their side. What what else did you find while you were tramping around in the snow in Buffalo?
2: One of the interesting things happening in Buffalo right now is that you have a group of employers who are really focused on trying to meet their needs for skilled workers in part through recruiting people who already have the skills, but also by training people who are in the city and who are able, who are competent, but just don't have the specific skills that a company needs at that moment. So m and Bank, along with some other companies in the region, were sponsoring a 12-week intensive program to create um, data analysts. So there were people who had applied to the program, and they included people who had worked in corrections, someone who had worked at McDonald's, um, people who had worked in marketing, there was someone who'd worked with the US embassy in Kabul and had recently relocated to Buffalo. And all these people were were there, and they had a job that they were going to be prepared for on the back end of it. And I thought that that was a really interesting example, because there are all different types of ways that companies are trying to meet the um, real acute need they have for certain types of workers and you see companies getting much more creative about how they're trying to find them
0: what do you make of howard schultz's argument as presented by the woman you spoke to at the end of that package which was essentially that the things that unions fight for are things that you already have therefore a union is superfluous do you credit that at all or is that a boss trying to stave off unionization
2: i think that howard schultz has a better case to make than most companies who are in the service sector But what I found fascinating about Angel's response is that there's a new generation of worker who just has a different standard. And that you see that in service jobs, you also see it in white collar jobs. When I talk to companies who are thinking about how they recruit young analysts at a bank or thinking about how they might. recruit people in the tech industry. You know, they're very very aware that they need to be not just paying very good wages, but trying to make the experience for that employee one where they feel like they're supported and can grow and particularly in the, the service jobs and the warehouse jobs in Starbucks there's a lot about safety. The Amazon workers, a lot of their concerns are about safety. It also has to do with wages and benefits, but it's broader than that. And so I think that some of this will result in more union votes, um, Stewart told me that he's getting calls almost every day from people at Amazon warehouses around the country who are thinking about unionizing, but I think probably what will happen is there will be some union votes, but total unionization rates will remain pretty low as i said it, it it's a very small fraction of the American population, and instead what you'll see is is companies who are very concerned, frankly, about unionization, being more aggressive in thinking about how they can change how they operate, um, how they can change their wages to try to get and keep the workers they need.
1: I think there's something to the argument that a lot of the things that unions have fought for historically have happened or are happening. So those improvements in workplace safety standards, holiday pay, more civilized working conditions, higher salaries. I mean, you see, as Charlotte says, a lot of non-union workplaces and companies really fighting very hard and offering very generous packages to new workers. So our colleague Simon Rabinovich had a piece recently and he had some examples in there. New truck drivers in Portland, Oregon, being offered $30,000 as a signing on bonus. New recruits in the army, $50,000 bonuses. Um, Amazon and Walmart covering college tuition for their employees. The minimum wage at Amazon these days is, I mean, a long, long way above the federal minimum wage, which is paltry, but it's pushing $20 these days, isn't it, Charlotte? So um, clearly, it seems to me that there's a virtuous circle here that companies like Amazon that are not keen to have unionized workforces, as Charlotte says, are doing their best to avoid that by being pretty generous to their workers.
2: I think you're right, John Prito, that there are lots of changes happening now that are very promising for American workers. I think the concern among some is that they'll be transient. And so the question is whether these are changes that last. And so unions want to lock them in. Right. That's what the point of a contract is. Um, A signing bonus is a signing bonus. And then that's it. And so there are some changes that will be more permanent, some changes that will be more transient. And I think that's part of what makes this a really interesting time, because you see this enormous amount of experimentation and enormous amount of change in how companies are thinking about their workforce. And the question is, what lasts?
1: Okay. in a moment, we'll go back to a time of huge change in the relationship between American employers and their employees. But first, to read everything The Economist does, you need to be a subscriber. If you sign up, you'll get exclusive access to the US newsletter emailed directly to you every Friday. You'll also be able to read Charlotte's excellent piece about the labour market and play with our French election model, which our colleague Elliot built this week and gives Emmanuel Macron a higher chance of victory than I think most French pundits expect. That's a really interesting piece of work, well worth Playing around with Charlotte and John, what else did you particularly like in this week's newspaper?
0: I liked Matt Steinglass's piece on how people in the Baltic states are looking at what's happening in Ukraine with some trepidation.
2: I think that our Russia coverage continues to be excellent. It's being examined, obviously, by our colleagues who are experts on Moscow. Um, and foreign relations, but it also is being looked at by my colleague Vijay Vaithi Swaran, who's writing about the effect on energy markets. Um, It's just really comprehensive and good.
1: I'd second that. I also learned a new word reading our Russia coverage this week. Uh, Rasputitsa. It's the term in Russian, I believe, for the moment when the snow melts and it becomes impossible to take heavy artillery um, across muddy fields in Eastern Europe. So if... Vladimir Putin is going to invade Ukraine, and let's all hope he doesn't. If it were to be a large-scale invasion involving artillery and tanks and that sort of thing, it would have to happen before the Rasputitsa comes, and it just becomes too muddy.
2: I have to say, I learn a new vocabulary word from our Lexington column all the time. It's like vocabulary with James Astle.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I agree. Maybe that should be our equivalent of Wordle. Okay, to subscribe to The Economist, go to economist.com slash USpod. You'll find that link in the notes for this episode.
3: Today I sent a message to the Congress pointing out the overwhelming urgency of the serious domestic economic crisis in which we are threatened.
1: It was a time of crisis and the president was anxious about inflation and a labour shortage.
3: If the vicious
4: spiral
3: of inflation ever gets underway, the whole economic system will stagger. Prices and wages will go up so rapidly that the entire production programme will be in danger.
1: In September 1942, with millions of men fighting the Second World War, Franklin Delano Roosevelt worried that the scarcity of workers at home would send wages soaring. The result was the War Labour Board, which prevented firms from offering big pay rises. Companies, desperate to attract staff, began using other enticements, namely health insurance. In 1943, the IRS decided that this would be tax-free, tying health care to employment in a way that has caused problems ever since.
2: The war to which we have devoted all the resources and all the energy of our country for more than three and a half years, has now produced total victory over all our enemies.
1: Two years later, a new president, Harry Truman, told the nation that Japan had surrendered and the Second World War had been won.
2: I think I know the American soldier and sailor. He does not want gratitude or sympathy. He had a job to do. He did not like it, but he did it. And how he did it.
3: Now he wants to come back home and start again the life he loves, a life of peace and quiet, the life of the civilian.
1: The troops came home, and between 1945 and 1947, the share of Americans employed in the military or in civilian work supporting it, fell from 39% to 5% of the labour force. The pool of workers drastically expanded, But thanks in part to federal intervention and a surge in demand for consumer goods, the unemployment rate didn't shoot up, rising by only two points to 3.9%. Nearly six million people left the labour force too, many of them women, who returned to their domestic duties as the men came back from the front. America's period of post-war prosperity had begun, and with it started a new era for the American worker. White-collar jobs became more common as companies grew, and technological improvements helped boost productivity in factories. Firms competed for workers by offering not just healthcare, but pensions, paid holiday, and job security. They sought to incentivize loyalty, too. PepsiCo started promising long-term employees an 18-karat gold watch when they retired. At the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, politicians like Donald Trump and Andrew Cuomo would compare the fight against the virus to the fight against fascism 80 years ago. It's a lazy analogy, but there are similarities in the way the labour market is responding to these shocks, with millions of Americans shifting into and out of the workforce at a fast pace, and companies competing fiercely for them. The war and its aftermath changed American work in ways that would last for decades. What's happening now is not on the same scale, but a significant change is underway, one which has the potential to reshape the bargain between company and employee. John, let's start with that phenomenon of people leaving the labor market entirely. America has about 3 million fewer workers now than it had on the eve of the pandemic, which is about a 2% contraction in the labor force. What is going on there?
0: I think there are probably a couple of main culprits. So they'd be very interested to hear what Charlotte has to say. One, it seems to me that older workers may have left during COVID and are not coming back. They retired early. They may be self-employed, but they left the regular workforce that they had been in for the past 30 or 40 years. The other culprit, it seems to me, is low immigration rates. They plummeted under Donald Trump during COVID. They have not picked back up yet. So that pool of labor that employers had counted on to keep at a sort of fairly constant depth, it's just not at that depth anymore. It's shallower because there are fewer people entering and more people leaving.
2: That's right. There are figures on this. The St. Louis Fed analyzed the data and saw that there were more than 2.4 million baby boomers who took an early retirement by their estimate. And then the levels of immigration as of July of 2021, the year to July 2021, which is the most recent time there were figures available, were about a sixth of the level of 2016. That's a dramatic, dramatic fall. So those are two big things. But I also think it's worth thinking about some bigger trends that suggest that even though the labor market will loosen somewhat, which it will as the pandemic uh, eases, that there are other things underway that will mean that it doesn't loosen entirely. So if you think about the past few decades, American companies really benefited from a few big trends. One was women entering the workforce. Another was uh, offshoring. You had globalization that enabled companies to find cheap labor overseas if they couldn't find it at home. And those trends have mostly matured.
0: If you were to look 10 or 20 years into the future, I mean, the history package mentioned health insurance as a thing that companies just did to attract workers that stuck. What trends now do you think will stick? What are the big structural changes that we're seeing the start of now that you expect to persist?
2: Companies are responding in a few different ways. The most obvious one, of course, is to raise pay. And so you see that with big increases in bonuses. You've also seen a big jump among wages um, on the lower end of the income distribution. So salaries are rising more quickly for low-wage workers than for the broader population. But interestingly, these wages aren't rising yet fast enough to overcome the big jump in inflation. So last year, the only sector where you saw wages rising more quickly than inflation was in the leisure and hospitality industry, where There's been a real, real shortage of workers. So I think there's more pressure on companies this year to continue raising those wages higher. And when you think about changes that might be more lasting, companies are more interested in taking workers who don't have four-year college degrees. It just seems less important than it did to many companies. They're not that fixated on it. And there's an increasing understanding that having all your training lumped at the beginning of your career isn't that sensible when you could have training sprinkled throughout it, when the economy is changing so quickly, when the skills that workers need are changing so quickly.
1: Okay, we'll be back in a moment to ask whether robots are going to make up for the shortfall in the labour market. Charlotte, one of the details I really enjoyed in your piece this week was about a company that slices lettuce and how they are replacing workers with robots. Can you tell us a bit more about that?
2: Yes, I spoke with a company called McIntyre Produce, which is one of many companies that are investing in automation. Last year, the orders of robots surpassed its pre-pandemic high by 14%. And so you see companies of all sizes, big and and smaller ones like McIntyre, investing more in automation.
1: And perhaps the world expert on the effect of increased automation on wages and on the labour market generally is Darren Asimoglu at MIT, who also happens to be a checks and balance listener. And so you you talked to him as well for the piece.
2: Yes, I really wanted to talk to Darren and he had lots of interesting things to say about the trends he's observing in automation.
4: The story of automation is not a recent one you know automation has been part of the industrial fabric of the US economy since the early uh, 19th century and and it's been important throughout the 20th but i think there has been an acceleration with office software and robots and recent digital technologies ai included are a further stage in that acceleration and the pandemic has really given it a further push i think automation in general can be a good thing. It increases productivity. But for that, it needs to be counterbalanced by other things that also create opportunities for workers so that they can get reallocated away from the tasks that are being automated. That's what the US economy hasn't done over the last four decades. And as a result, automation has had a pretty heavy toll on certain demographic groups.
2: So let's unpack that a bit because there's a growing body of research that shows that automation can boost total employment, right? So is that not a good thing? Tell me about how this can be more negative.
4: My work doesn't find that it boosts overall employment. So we have to really dig into what different studies find and uh, how to interpret the findings. What you do see is that firms that automate overall expand, because those tend to be the more productive firms, and as they automate, they reduce their costs. But automation at the industry level or local labor market level is associated with lower employment. So, for instance, if you look at what happens to total employment in commuting zones that have introduced robots there's a significant decline in employment. It's not the sort of decline that will immediately make you think of end of work, which is the sort of apocalyptic scenario that some people talk about. We're not not there yet, and my work doesn't support that. But there is a negative effect. And moreover, that negative effect is associated with quite significant wage declines. And almost all of it falls on the shoulders of some specific demographic groups, those specialized in the jobs that are being automated. So it's very unequally distributed effects.
2: Tell me about the types of automation that you've seen recently in the course of the pandemic. Has it been a different pace or nature of automation than you saw prior?
4: Yes, it's been a a faster pace. Uh, At least we don't have great comparable data from before the pandemic, but there is now a body of data and findings from surveys and robots, orders, and so on that do indicate faster automation. And you also see in the U.S. economy... Certain sectors that weren't investing as much in automation technologies now doing so. So, you know, if you compare the U.S. and some European economies, you know, one distinguishing feature is that wages are lower in the U.S., And that meant that some jobs were just not economical for companies to automate. Fast food restaurants, cashier services, and so on. Whereas if you look in the Netherlands, uh, where minimum wages are much higher, or in France, you see more automation in some of these tasks. So during the pandemic, those are exactly the sectors that started facing a shortage of labor. And they went more into automation. And uh, the issue is, of course... This is not a short-term investment. When companies do that, they never return back to hiring workers. So the question is going to be, you know, what happens when the pandemic ends? If we create much better jobs for fast food restaurant workers, for hospitality sector workers, great, their jobs have been automated and we reallocated them to better jobs. But the chances are, at least on the basis of the track record of the U.S. economy over the last three and a half decades, is that that's not what we're going to do. So we may end up with... Uh, an unpleasant situation that, you know, we haven't really planned for.
2: Can you tell me about the way that American automation and investment in automation differs with some of the trends that you've seen elsewhere? My understanding is that you've seen in some of your research and and those of other economists that there are ways, uh, examples in foreign markets that automation is deployed in a manner that boosts productivity and is a bit more beneficial to workers overall. Is that true?
4: Yes, absolutely. And I think there are two aspects of that that are important to emphasize, which again, highlight that the details of how you do automation and what else you do as you're automating work matter greatly. One of them is when you automate because you have labor shortages, which is exactly the situation in Japan, the leader in world uh, automation technology in South Korea, which has been the fastest automating country, and in Germany, you know that's not going to be very harmful to workers because the reason why you're doing the automation is because you didn't have workers to put in these jobs. And indeed, the evidence from Japan, South Korea, and Germany, and several other European countries which have also been affected by demographic change more than the U.S., is that when that's done well, Uh, And effectively, it does increase productivity quite a bit. And it is also very important for these economies to specialize in the sectors in which they have high productivity. In fact, their exports in these sectors grow precisely because they are automating and not being afflicted by the labor shortages. And in the process of automating, they're also increasing productivity. So it's a very successful example of automation in these cases. But the second factor is also important. German companies do much more than US ones to shield their workers from the negative effects of automation. So, for example, when you look at what happens to blue-collar jobs when there's automation, you see a very similar profile in Germany and the US. Blue-collar jobs disappear in both countries when you introduce robots. But American companies lay off blue-collar workers. German companies retrain them for other tasks.
1: Well, our plan for Productivity Boost at The Economist is to automate the podcast hosting function and just let the listeners take over. That was very interesting, Charlotte. Great to hear from Darren. Where is automation being deployed most? Which areas of the labour market? Where is it really showing up?
2: Well, one thing that's fascinating now versus before is it's really become more widespread across different sectors and across different sizes of companies. So you can think about how it's being deployed in ways that you might recognize um, that automatic checkout at your local pharmacy or at your supermarket. But then it's also being used by people who are closing mortgages online in a digital fashion in a way that eases up labor hours to do other things. In factories, you see it across not just car making. Car makers have been using automation for a long time in their plants in the car supply chain. But also you see it in food processing, you see it um, in different types of consumer industries. They're all different types of companies that are using automation now that that weren't on a big scale before. And one of the things that's interesting, McIntyre, the company I mentioned in South Carolina, it is leasing its robots from a young company called Formic that has a business model that really reduces the upfront cost of automation for a smaller company. So rather than have to pay and um, swallow, you know, quite a big price to get the robots installed and then worry about maintaining them, you can just lease a robot and have Formic. Uh, Continue to do the maintenance on that robot. You don't really have to worry about it. And so, lowering the barriers for companies means that automation is becoming cheaper as labor is getting more expensive.
0: What do you make of the political rhetoric around automation? I mean, I, I thought that Darren Asimoglu made a very good case that automation may be a net boon in the sense that it makes the economy more productive as a whole. People who are displaced often get more productive jobs. But if you remember in 2020, Andy Yang's entire presidential campaign was about the threat of automation, and it seems to make a really good villain. So, a question for, for Charlotte. As someone who knows this well, how threatening do you think it actually is, and how do you think we should be talking about it politically as distinct from economically?
3: I think
2: that politicians have spent their careers lamenting the state of the American worker and that's to be clear for pretty good reason in that if you look at the past uh, few decades of American life Productivity has increased, corporate profits have soared, and median wages have stagnated. Labor's share of net in- of national income has declined, and it's declined steeply in lots of industrial countries, but declined particularly steeply in America. So, you know, I don't think people are kind of making up that there's a problem here. In regards to automation specifically, I think that Fear-mongering can get a little out of hand, but I do think that automation casts into high relief a question that has really loomed large in American life for a long time, which is, how to help, how should businesses, how should workers themselves, how should policymakers, how should we think about people who are displaced by big changes, by big economic changes? The kind of sensible path, I would argue, is to have a much better education system, one that is, you know, from the beginning, um, a more functional school system that Develops people with the ability to succeed in the workplace and adapt to different challenges as industries evolve, that there should be more continuous training over time. I mean, I think that those types of investments are really worth making. And so the question is whether any of these changes actually are made. If you think about the tax treatment for investments in equipment, investments in automation, it differs from the tax treatment for investments in human capital. One could argue that you should have the same incentive for a company to invest in training as you should to have a company invest in robots.
1: I was also thinking about the politics of this, John, as Darren was talking, as Charlotte was talking. I mean, the canonical example of an anti-automation movement is the Luddites in Britain in the 1810s who broke up cotton mills and wool mills because they were worried about their jobs being replaced by those machines. And that wasn't a particularly successful movement. The automation continued... But it's really interesting thinking back to the 2016 election. The narrative then, from the Trump campaign at least, was all about how the American worker had had such a tough time because of trade deals and because of China. And if you spoke to pretty much any serious economist, they would have told you at the time that the kind of wage pressures that Charlotte was referring to there came about as a result of technological change as well as trade. And if you had to pick between the two of them, technology maybe had more to do with it than trade. And yet in the political discourse, technological change, automation, other things like that hardly featured. If you look at what's happening now in the American economy, trade with China has slowed for obvious reasons. There's very little immigration as well. And so that got me wondering about whether you could see something like a Luddite movement take off in America, you know, not to the same extent, I'm sure, but whether automation might become the baddie, not now when wages are rising for everyone. But if you had a combination of rapid automation, and wages falling, then I think politically, that would become quite a different proposition.
2: Yeah, It's interesting, if you look at how companies just anecdotally, the companies that I spoke with, um, some of the changes that they're making. So McIntyre, which is this produce company that sells veggies to fast food restaurants. They want to have more automation and then higher skilled jobs for the people who remain. DCL is a logistics company that I spoke with that is also investing more heavily in automation. The two changes that it made were investing in automation and moving from temporary staff to full-time staff because those full-time workers were more productive. So the dream of automation is that you have two things happening at the same time, that you have automation that boosts productivity and the jobs that remain are better. And the question is, can you get the people whose jobs were automated into those better jobs, um, to put in hugely simplified terms. And so that's, I think, a really big question coming out of this acute labor shortage, but also a big question for the next decade.
1: Well, one thing, Charlotte, that I imagine you would like to have automated is the quiz. In 1936, The Economist published an article with the title Machinery in the Office, which opened by remarking that Ever since the Sons of Adam fashioned rude implements to work the fields, man's ambition to devise machines to lighten his toil has been perennial. Question. John Adams, you see what I did there, Adam, Adams, was the second president of the United States. He died in 1826, on exactly the same day as which other
0: political figure? Hmm. George Washington?
2: That'd be cool. I mean... That'd be a pretty wonderful historical coincidence. My new strategy, I'm not going to give answers. I'm just going to comment on John Fasman's answers.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The answer is not George Washington. It's in fact Thomas Jefferson. The two founding fathers died on July the 4th, 1826, 50 years to the day since the Declaration of Independence. There's a good book about their relationship, which was usually tetchy, called Founding Brothers by a guy called Joseph Ellis. But that is an amazing coincidence. Question two. Born on the Fourth of July is a 1989 Oscar winning film starring Tom Cruise, directed by Oliver Stone. Stone's directed a trilogy of films based on American presidents. Which
0: three? Nixon. Uh, JFK, Nixon. Yeah. And what was the other one?
2: Maybe did he do a Clinton film?
0: Maybe. He was always a terrible director and filmmaker, but it's ever got really raggedy late in his career. I don't know, Clinton, George W. Bush?
1: It was George W. It Bush. Was, okay. yeah. Charlie, you got two out of three. John, you got three out of three, which makes you by a whisker this week's winner.
2: I will say that the conditions of the interview with Darren Asimoglu was that he said he would not participate in the quiz. <laughs>
1: Well, that's it for this week. Charlotte, it was great to have you out reporting in the world again. It feels like, knock on wood, the COVID pandemic in America is is slowly coming to an end. Um, See you next week.
2: See you next week. Thank you.
1: And John, I'll see you next week in person. I can't wait. I will see you in London very soon. Thank you to our producer, Harriet Noble, and our sound engineer, Nicola Rofast. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email, particularly if you happen to be a retired CIA officer. The address is podcasts at In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.